This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Spider. We've made mention a few times in past episodes of what we might deem the ubiquitous beasts of fantasy gaming's first few levels. We've talked about how fledgling adventurers are inevitably called upon to exterminate rats and how greenhorn heroes can expect to be set upon by wolves on their first few wanderings from civilization. And what's interesting in this pattern is just how mundane those foes are. Think about it. We have these fantastic worlds filled with dragons and griffins and basilisks and cocka cockatrix croca cockatricicles? It doesn't matter. The point is, in most fantasy games, there's a sort of transition from the mundane to the magical in the foes you face. Start with rats and wolves, then move on to slightly more fantastic versions of normal beasts. Then deal with evil humanoids like orcs and goblins, or else reanimated corpses in the form of zombies and skeletons. And then, then you're ready for dragons. And in that transitional state between the completely mundane beasts and the imaginary humanoids and undead, no monster better bridges the gap than a giant spider. As strange and alien as they are, and as unimaginable as it is to see one the size of a Winnebago, spiders are completely normal. They're all around us. Indeed, we've all heard the terrifying statistic that no person on Earth is ever more than three feet from a spider. But don't worry if that statistic makes you uncomfortable. We're here to tell you right now that it's probably not true. Many of you may be upwards of 10 feet away from a spider right now, but some of you may have tiny spiders right under your feet. The fact is, that off-quoted bit of nightmare fuel that you are never more than three feet from a spider isn't quite accurate. But it's also, probably, not as inaccurate as some of you might hope. See, the actual statistic comes from a 1995 article by a famous arachnologist. That's a scientist who studies things with eight legs. Arachnologist Norman Platnick. And what he said was, where you sit as you read these lines, a spider is probably no more than a few yards away. But Platnik was misquoted when the Honolulu Star Bulletin reviewed a museum exhibit about spiders in 1996. The Star Bulletin said, Scientists estimate we're never more than three feet from a spider. That's because some are microscopic and actually live right on you! The emphasis, by the way, was theirs. And that second bit was false. They were confusing spiders with dust mites. The microscopic bugs that live on you and feed off your dead skin as it flakes off? Those aren't spiders. Those are dust mites. So relax. Anyway, Platnik's remark was repeatedly misquoted after that. Even Platnik misquoted himself under pressure during a CNN interview in May of 2002, saying, You are probably within six feet of a spider, wherever you are. The truth is, though, that the distance between you and the nearest spider varies greatly depending on where you are. If you're in a building, yeah, 
is probably some spiders pretty close to you. But if you're in the middle of a parking lot, the nearest one could be 500 feet away. And if you're in an airplane, assuming it's nighttime and there's no spiders ballooning alongside the aircraft, you could be miles and miles from a spider. And no one has ever figured out a way to calculate the average distance between any given human and his near spider buddy. So relax. By the way, if you are afraid of spiders, don't feel badly. You're in good company. Arachnophobia, the psychological fear of spiders, is one of the ten most prevalent phobias in the world. One third of Americans suffer from some degree of arachnophobia, making it the third most common American fear after glossophobia, the fear of public speaking, and necrophobia, the fear of death. Of course, that said, what most people have is not truly a phobia, but a fear. While it is true that phobia comes from the Greek word phobos, meaning fear, there is an important psychological distinction between a fear and a phobia. A fear is defined by psychologists as an emotional response to a real or perceived threat. But for a fear to be considered a phobia, the response must include an anxiety response that interferes with the person's ability to function or impacts their quality of life. A phobic will spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about the sources of their phobia and make unnecessarily large efforts to avoid the sources of their fear well beyond the norm. Obviously, the severity of phobias can vary, but a true arachnophobic might insist on searching a room they enter for spiders before they can be comfortable. They might refuse to operate their car, canceling important appointments and remaining housebound if a spider was found in or on their car, even if the spider has been removed. Only about 5% of those who report a fear of spiders have a true phobia. That said, if you are arachnophobic, or even if spiders merely make you uncomfortable, you might want to skip the rest of this episode. It does not get any more pleasant from here, but we promise we'll talk about something tamer next week. Of course, the true arachnophobics didn't even download this episode. But getting back to the subject at hand, while it may or may not be true that there is a spider within three feet of you right now, it is true that there are a hell of a lot of spiders sharing this planet with us. In fact, if you were to gather all of the spiders on Earth and weigh them, they would weigh 29 million tons. That's almost 500 times the weight of the Titanic. And that's enough spiders to eat all of the humans on Earth in one year and still be hungry before summer. See, spiders have pretty voracious appetites. And recently, two biologists named Martin Niffler and Klaus Berkhofer calculated that based on their weight, all of the spiders on Earth consumed between 400 and 800 million tons of food a year. For comparison, there are about 290 million tons of human beings on Earth. But we digress. See, it's easy to terrify a third of our listeners with spider facts like that. But the truth is, we here at the Word of the Week actually find spiders pretty damned amazing. They're fascinating creatures. 
And we're not the only ones. See, because spiders are so ubiquitous and prevalent, with some of its 35,000 known species living in almost every ecosystem on Earth and living on every continent except Antarctica, because spiders are so prevalent, they feature in the mythologies of many different cultures. And they are all fascinating. Among the most well-known of mythological spider figures is that of Anansi, from West African folklore. Anansi is a complicated figure who appears in many tales, and according to the myths of the Ashanti tribes of Ghana, Anansi is the reason why there are any stories in the world. This story goes like this. Once, all of the stories in the world were possessed by Nyan Kanpon, the sky god. And the people of the world wanted to hear the sky god's stories. But Nyan Kanpon refused to share them. Then, Anansi the spider went before the sky god and offered to buy the stories. Nyan Kanpon refused to sell the stories at first, but after some pleading from the spider, the god agreed to sell the stories if the spider could complete an impossible task. The spider was to capture four spirits, Onini the python, Osiba the leopard, Momoatia the fairy, and Moboro the hornet. Anansi agreed to undertake the task. First, Anansi went to Onini the python and made a wager with the prideful snake about his length. Onini couldn't prove his true length because he was unable to stretch out completely straight, so Anansi offered to tie him to a perfectly straight stick to hold him straight for the measuring. The python agreed, and he was bound and captured. Second, the spider visited Osibo the leopard. He dug a deep hole, and when Osibo fell in, Anansi agreed to weave a rope from his web to help the leopard. But the leopard became stuck to the web, and Anansi bound him up. For the hornets, he began by hollowing out a gourd. Then he covered himself with a wet leaf and ran up to the hornets yelling that it was raining and offering to shelter the hornets in his gourd. They rushed in and were caught. Finally, for the fairy, Anansi wove a doll from his silk mixed with sap from a gum tree. He then left the doll beside a yam outside of the Tree of Life where the fairies played. When Moatia the fairy emerged, she saw the yam and ate it. Then, mistaking the doll for a person, she thanked it for the treat. But the doll, being a doll, didn't respond. The affronted fairy slapped the doll for its rudeness and became stuck to it. Thus, Anansi fulfilled Nyan the Sky God's request and was able to buy all of his stories to share with the world. To this day, according to some West African folklore, myths are called spider stories. Over time, in West African myth, Anansi was gradually elevated from a trickster to a prominent figure to even a deity in his own right. In some beliefs, Anansi created the sun, the stars, and the moon, and taught humanity methods of agriculture, weaving, and other important skills. 
and his stories have spread with the West African peoples to the Caribbean Sea, the West Indies, Suriname, and the Antilles. In Aruba, he is called Nanzi, and in the southern United States, among West African slaves, he gradually morphed into a figure called Aunt Nancy. Now I've checked, and my Aunt Nancy is definitely not a spider, as far as I can tell. Anansi is not the only spider of myth responsible for bringing light, agriculture, and civilization to the world. According to Native American Cherokee tales, it was Grandmother Spider who brought the sun to the world. According to the legend, in ancient times the world was dark because the sun was on the other side of the world. The animals agreed that someone should go and fetch the sun. After several animals ended up with severe burns in their failed attempts, wise Grandmother Spider set out to catch the sun. She made a clay bowl to hold the sun, and rolled it carefully to where the sun was hiding, weaving a web behind her all the way. Then she scooped up the sun in the bowl and dragged herself back across the sky, incidentally, from east to west, along her web, pulling the bowl full of sun with her. But not all spiders in all stories are so wise and kind, and not all bring light. Some consume it. See, as fantasy gamers, we'd be remiss in this discussion of spiders if we didn't mention a more modern spider myth. The myth of Shelob, or more appropriately, of Shelob's mother, Ungoliant. Now, fantasy fans of any stripe will recognize the name of the terrible giant spider that attacked Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee after they were tricked into entering her lair by the sinister golem. But fewer fans know the story of Shelob's mother from the massive prequel to J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. That's because the story almost never saw the light of day. See, after Tolkien's first fantasy novel, The Hobbit, was published in 1937, it was an instant hit. People loved the story of Bilbo Baggins being stirred to adventure by his wizard friend and joining dwarves on a quest to slay a dragon and reclaim their lost kingdom. And the publishing house, Allen and Unwin, was eager for another success. So they asked Tolkien to write a sequel, and so... Tolkien began work on a massive, multi-part epic that greatly expanded on the world of the Middle-earth. And when he sent an early draft of the first part to his publisher, the publisher rejected it. He wanted another story about hobbits, and what Tolkien had sent was a collection of myths and legends from the earliest days with the creation of a world called Ea. Following the rejection, Tolkien began work on The Lord of the Rings instead, which was published in three volumes between 1954 and 1955. Meanwhile, though, he continued to work on his massive tome that recounted the mythical history of the world of Middle-earth. Unfortunately, he passed away before he finished the massive five-part undertaking. But his son, Christopher Tolkien, and fellow writer Guy Gavriel Kay compiled, revised, and completed the work after Tolkien's passing. And in 1977, The Silmarillion was published by Allen and Unwin. The Silmarillion tells the complete mythic history of Ea, 
the world of Middle-earth, starting with its creation and ending just before the events in The Lord of the Rings get started. And one of the myths in the Silmarillion speaks of a great primordial being, the Titan Ungoliant. She was a massive spider who hungered for light. When the world of Ea was first created, it was lit by the light from two trees. But a vengeful angel named Morgoth formed an alliance with Ungoliant. They attacked the primordial world, and Ungoliant drank the light from the two trees. Fortunately, before this had happened, an elf named Fëanor had crafted several jewels that captured the two trees' light. These gems were called the Silmarils, and the events surrounding the creation, theft, and pursuit of the Silmarils is what gives the Silmarillion its name. Now, many fans of Dungeons & Dragons might recognize some similarities between the ancient Spider Queen of Darkness and Chaos Ungoliant, and a certain spider goddess of chaos and darkness called Loth. And E. Gary Gygax, co-creator of Dungeons & Dragons, would like you to know very clearly that Loth is a completely original creation of his own, thank you very much. We're not kidding. In an email exchange in August of 2005, Gygax stated emphatically to scholar and game designer Kim Nevelstein that Loth, the giant spider goddess, was, quote, strictly a creation of his own imagination without any inspiration from Professor Tolkien's writings, end quote. If the tone of that particular email sounds a bit pointed, well, it is. And that's not surprising. Over the years, Gary Gygax had a lot of very pointed things to say about how much J.R.R. Tolkien's writings did or did not influence D&D. As did his company, TSR. Back in 1978, in the 13th issue of Dragon Magazine, Rob Kuntz of TSR tried to put the question to bed in an editorial, citing numerous quotes from Gary Gygax himself. And Gygax himself fielded the question of Tolkien's influence on D&D numerous times in interviews, always insisting the influence had been minimal. Most famously, Gygax stated that while he enjoyed The Hobbit, it was merely a gateway drug that got him into the writings of Robert E. Howard, Fritz Lieber, L. Sprague de Camp, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Paul Anderson. He would further go on to say he found the Lord of the Rings series boring, and he felt that Tolkien's stories would have made terrible stories for Dungeons and Dragons that I can't even. Finally, he stated that the inclusion of certain fantasy creatures like Ents, Hobbits, and Balrog was done merely to satisfy his friends and fans who insisted such things needed a place in D&D. Of course, it was the inclusion of precisely those elements that led J.R.R. Tolkien's estate to bring a lawsuit against TSR in 1976, which is ultimately why hobbits are called halflings, ants are called trants, and why the Balrog is known as the Balor. But we've discussed that before. To this day, the question of how much Gygax's game was influenced by Tolkien's writing is still hotly debated and Gygax's repeated attempts to distance Dungeons and Dragons from the Lord of the Rings might simply be a result of the lawsuit. But we digress. 
After all, what's amazing about spiders, and why they make such great foes, doesn't come from mythology or fiction. It comes from their biology. Let's start by stating what you should already know. Spiders are not insects. They are arachnids. But they are not entirely unrelated. Insects and arachnids, along with crustaceans, are members of the phylum of animals called arthropods. That name comes from the Greek and means hinged foot. And that's because all arthropods have several pairs of jointed legs. But they also have an exoskeleton. That means they wear their bones on the outside. And before you write in, they don't really have bones at all. What they do have is plates made of a mixture of a complex carbohydrate called chitin and calcium. As noted, arthropods include all animals with chitinous exoskeletons, bodies that are divided into distinct units called segments and multiple pairs of jointed legs. That includes crustaceans like crabs and lobsters, insects, myriapods like centipedes and millipedes, and arachnids. Arachnids are eight-legged arthropods and include scorpions, ticks, and, of course, spiders. And what makes spiders unique amongst all of these arachnids and arthropods is their biology. Spider bodies come in two parts. The main part of their body is called the cephalothorax, which means head body, because it contains pretty much everything you'd expect to be in a head body. It's got the face, mouth, eyes, brain, and most of the spider's digestive tract. It is also where the spider's four pairs of seven-jointed clawed legs attach. Spiders also have a large, pronounced abdomen attached to their cephalothorax via a narrow waist-like structure called a pedicle. And the abdomen contains the spider's reproductive organs, lungs, and the remainder of its digestive tract. It also contains the most fascinating structures of all, the spider's silk glands. See, like certain caterpillars and silkworms, spiders can produce extremely strong strands of natural protein called silk. And for its size, silk is one of the strongest substances on Earth. A single strand of silk is stronger than the same size strand of steel wire. But whereas silkworms and caterpillars use this silk to form cocoons, spiders are a lot more complicated. In fact, Spiders can produce up to six different types of silk. The silk is produced in liquid form in the spider's silk glands, and it remains liquid until the spider secretes it from one of its many spinnerets. A spinneret is an external organ with multiple small and large orifices called spools and spigots that the spider uses to weave silk. Some spiders have very complex spinning organs, called cribellum, that include over 40,000 individual spigots. From their up to six different silk glands, spiders can create six different silks of varying thickness, consistency, and purpose. Two types of swathing silk are used to form a protective coon around the spider's eggs. One type of silk is specifically for anchoring silk threads to other surfaces, either for the spider to dangle from or to anchor a web to. Two types of silk form the structure of the web. And a final type of silk is extremely sticky and is used to trap prey. Now, while all spiders can produce silk, not all spiders use it in all the same ways. 
Specifically, hunting spiders use silk to produce egg sacs, for mobility, and to line their nests. But they do not use silk to trap their prey. They are fast and efficient predators, a bit like cheetahs of the arthropod world. But even the spiders that do use silk to trap their prey don't all use it the same way. They have a lot of tricks. We're all familiar, for example, with web spinners. These are spiders that build net-like webs coated with sticky silk. When prey flies into the web, it becomes trapped, and the spider captures and eats it. But not all spiders are content to merely lay traps and wait for prey to blunder into it. Consider, for example, the bolas spider. Bolas spiders fling sticky balls of silk attached to silken thread at passing insects, ensnaring them like a bola or lasso. Net casting spiders weave silken nets and then drop or throw them onto their prey. In addition to their silk, over 99% of all spiders on Earth produce either neurotoxins or necrotoxins in a poison gland that they can inject into prey using their hollow fangs. Neurotoxins are those that damage nerves, and necrotoxins cause body tissue damage. It is important to note that a very, very small minority of spiders are actually dangerous to humans. Most spider venoms have only a minor effect. That said, the spiders that are dangerous to humans can be deadly. In the United States, we really only have to worry about a few spiders. Among them are the black widow and brown recluse, or fiddleback spider so named for the brown fiddle-shaped markings on its back and bearing no relation to the editor and producer of this podcast. See? I told you. No spiders in the family. As far as you know. Outside of the United States, there are a handful of spiders whose poison is deadly to humans, the most famous of which is the Australian funnel spider whose bite can kill a healthy person inside of a single day. Now, we could go on about spiders and what amazing creatures they are, how most spiders have two main eyes and five secondary eyes, but how they rely primarily on sensory information gathered from vibration and touch-sensitive hairs covering their entire bodies. How some spiders can capture and kill bats, small fish, and even birds. We could talk about how some spiders use hydraulic pressure to jump up to 40 times their own body length. Or how baby spiders cast tiny parachutes of silk into the air so that the wind disperses the up to 1,000 newborn baby spiders emerging from a single egg sac. But given that a third of our listeners are probably sitting and humming with their fingers in their ears, if they're listening at all, we've probably gone on long enough. Someone let the arachnophobes know it's safe to come back. We're done now. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>